And I said, can you give me the information on Allen's Creek? And she said, why do you want Allen's Creek? That's the worst creek in the Illawarra. And which immediately made me really interested. Like, why is it the worst and how is it the worst and what does that mean? And, you know, when you come to a place like this, there's kind of rubbish, there's industry, there's machines digging stuff. But then there's a whole bunch of things for whom this is home. So that trajectory that the water takes, takes us on a really interesting journey through all kinds of differences in this place. Hello and welcome to There's No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. Join us on this audio field trip by the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong as we go knee-deep into some of the forgotten corners of the Illawarra and beyond. Each episode will meet leading geographers to explore how places are transformed by humans and others. We'll ask some challenging questions. What might more sustainable futures look and feel like? What is our relationship with nature today? What can Indigenous connections to country teach us about these places? And how do we understand disasters and invasive species? I'm Jennifer Macy, and today, our first episode, There's No Place Like Allen's Creek. Allen's Creek has been described as the worst creek in the Illawarra. It's a dirty little creek that runs through the middle of an industrial estate at Unandera on the New South Wales south coast. At one stage, the water's been forced to run along a concrete channel through factories. It reaches the sea at Port Kembla after flowing through the massive steelworks complex that dominates the coastline there. So what makes this the worst creek in the Illawarra? Worst according to whom or what? When we visited, we saw abundant plant and animal life reclaiming the creek from its industrial terrain. So why don't we take a closer look? Hi team. Hello. Hi. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. <laughs> Joining us on our field trip today are Associate Professor Michael Adams, Dr Chantel Carr, Dr Jenny Atchison and Dr Leah Gibbs. We're on the banks of one of the tributaries of Allen's Creek and like, if we just put it in the big picture of the physical geography, to our west here is Mount Kembla and the escarpment and we can see almost all of Mount Kembla nearly from where we're standing. So that's a high point in the landscape. This is, if we were down actually in the creek bed, it's the lowest point right here. If we go a little bit east, there's a little, a small ridge just here, which on its crest has the Berkeley Pioneer Cemetery, where I just was. And the, one of the earliest graves there is 1822, which is 200 years, only a few decades after the arrival of colonists here. And then east again, there's the Berkeley Hills. And the Berkeley Hills are the catchment divide. So the rain that falls on this side of the Berkeley Hills comes into the Allens Creek catchment and then out to sea. The rain that falls on the other side of the Berkeley Hills flows down into Lake Illawarra and out through that way. And then as we keep on going east, we, we go to the steelworks and then to the, to the coast itself. So, Michael, you've explored this creek for quite a while now. Do you want to tell us what sparked your interest in it? I started doing some work on all of the creeks in the Illawarra and I was talking to the council about them, the Wollongong local council environment person, and I said, can you give me the information on Allen's Creek? And she said, why do you want Allen's Creek? That's the worst creek in the Illawarra. And which immediately made me really interested, like why is it the worst and how is it the worst and what does that mean? And then she did send me through, you know, maps of species and things and it wasn't obvious that the 
the animals that live in these places make that judgment that she made. There were flying foxes, there were you know, all kinds of different species in this creek corridor just as they were in other creek corridors. The water flowing in here, some of the water flowing in here originates on the temple grounds, so it falls on the land of a Buddhist temple, flows down here through all this kind of industrial area where there's all kinds of impacts and noise and flows right through the middle of the steelworks where you can't go unless you're a steelworker or whatever. Like it's completely constructed and industrialised and then comes out to sea at the inner harbour and then the outer harbour which is also completely constructed and industrialised, like it's all straight edges. There is nothing, in quotes, natural there. So just that line, that, that trajectory that the water takes from the top of the Berkeley Hills out to sea takes us on a really interesting journey through all kinds of differences in this place. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, like that vegetation? I think that's red cedar, isn't it? These? I would have thought they were red cedar too. Yeah, the diversity of weeds is quite incredible. <laughs> Honeysuckle, <laughs> lantana, blackberry, yeah. wait a while... Morning glory. Cat's claw. We're standing, I don't know, five metres above the water level here on the bank, looking down to the water that is really dark. It's almost opaque from this angle. And and then there are these steep banks that are just covered in all sorts of incredible things, Uh, like bursts of orange with nasturtiums going absolutely crazy on the right bank as we look downstream. Um, and all these white cabbage butterflies, I can't remember what they're called. There's brambles or blackberry, heaps of lantana going in there. But there's always lots of bush regeneration that goes on with trying to pull things like lantana out of rivers. But what's really interesting, you know, Michael was talking about all the other beasts and creatures that make home here. That lantana is just an incredible habitat for all sorts of little birds so at this time of year we're starting to see superb fairy wrens um, that are getting their really bright vibrant blue ready for spring ready for breeding and the males get really aggressive and go really bright blue in preparation for for spring and so on Um, so there's lots of stuff like you can see insects floating around in here there's lots of really interesting life happening um, at this funny little weedy bend so, Jen, given that weeds are kind of your thing, mm. there's a lot of food here then. Well, there's blackberry everywhere. It's not in fruit at the moment. Nasturtiums are edible. That thing with the big ears down the bottom is, a, I think, is an arrowroot um, and is actually eaten in other parts of the world. There are acacias on the other side of the bank, which are um, edible probably too. There's mulberry and there are olives. So yeah, there are there are foods here in in weedy form, I guess you would say. There are lots of things that could be edible here. It's a really diverse weedy landscape. <laughs> Is Allen's Creek unusual in that it runs parallel to the escarpment rather than down the escarpment? No, if you look at the catchment maps, the creeks are going in all different directions. Um, because it's flowing north south here, it lets us to me think about where we are in the landscape with this big transport corridor like we're right next to the railway line here the highway on the other side of that and then not very far to the east the freeway so so we're scissored in between these two big transport corridors with what's in between them here pretty much thoroughly industrial and the the industry has affected the land like if we look on either sides of the bank it's completely flat 
So that's not natural. Like that's been bulldozed to do that, and they probably bulldozed the excess into the banks. So you know, if we walked further around here, there are constructed um, gabion walls, any amount of rubble, concrete, all kinds of stuff uh, under our feet right here. This is. Again, in quotes, not natural under our feet. But it goes through a process of becoming natural. So, you know, we're surrounded by life in all sorts of different ways here. And we can see the vegetation. We can hear the birds, quite a lot of different birds, above the machinery. (laughs) And if we were to hang out for a while, both in the water and, and on the banks, like in this creek I've seen eels, freshwater tortoises, fish, frogs, tadpoles, and on the bank... Uh, water dragons, skinks, I'm sure there's snakes, rabbits in here and lots of different birds. And it's a classic, you know, leftover site. Like these people right here making all the noise stopped me from going in there and said this is private property and you can't come here, but they don't do anything with it. They, you know, their factory is, is a little bit to the other side. So the council doesn't manage it or not, obviously. The, the owners on either side mow the lawn and that's all. But which means it kind of gets left alone. It's not the the things which choose to live here don't get interfered with very much by human managers, which I think makes it very interesting. And not so much on this creek, but on some others that I walked along here, you also find places where humans have made it home, little kind of encampments where there's a mattress and a stash of things to entertain you (laughs) yeah that (laughs) you know we're doing an audio recording and we're competing with all this other stuff and that's really normal here and one of the things that i've thought about because you you hear birdsong quite a lot that the animals have adjusted to that like that must have initially been a disturbance hearing all this and now it's less so that the animals live amongst that noise environment as well as the the physical environment like we can hear birds calling now industrially adapted animals (laughs) the creek itself is public land so it slips between these two industrial sites that are probably owned by different people but you kind of can't access it both because of that sort of ownership thing but also because of just how steep the banks are and because i assume the property is to where they've made it flat and then the bank of the creek and the creek itself is public land, but because of the nature of it is not really, unless we want it to get very dirty, it's not very accessible. One of the reasons it's not accessible is that this creek has been deepened by the upstream processes that are going on that we can't see upstream. So the impervious surfaces and the runoff from roofs and so on, and this creek is quite interesting in that it it displays a typical feature in the Illawarra in that the creek has deepened because of the increasing runoff from the upstream areas. So these banks here are steep, quite possibly because there's been a bit of extra fuel, but also because of what's going on in other places. So do you mean with the development of Mount Kembla, Cordo Heights, Farnborough Heights, all of that development, Jan? Absolutely, yeah. Those, Those processes affect the whole connectivity, both upstream and downstream from here. And there's a history to that too. So just across the road here, we've spotted a red cedar and there's a really long history of cedar being torn out of this landscape. So the very first colonialists in this region didn't come by land, they came by boat and they came by boat from Sydney to harvest that tree, red cedar. And so it's really interesting seeing 
a red cedar tree right here in this industrial estate where there's this really rich history of the timber, what they were called the cedar getters or the timber getters. So pulling huge trees out of those slopes that we're just looking at here on the escarpment, that's had over many decades, over a couple of centuries actually, that's had enormous effects in terms of increasing erosion and that increasing erosion on the slopes has contributed hugely to the process as Jenny was just describing about the deepening of these creeks. So even though it's a relatively short colonial history, there's actually a really long history in this place of processes that contribute to what we're looking at right here, this creek. Which makes us think about what was before that and you know when we're standing here we can see Mount Kira and Mount Kembla framing the western view which are both really significant places in the landscape to Aboriginal people. And this site, I really like it because like those two mountains remind you that it's an Aboriginal landscape and being here, both what Jen and Leah said about the dynamism of how this, this place in the creek responds to things happening in other places is, is a sort of a reflection of the agency of country, the, the Aboriginal concept of country having its own subjectivity its own actions its own agency to use that not very good term and all the other things that we share this landscape with using and responding to that irrelevant of us or maybe reacting to us as well I guess they are but just carrying on their own lives in this place which they've done for millennia they're different lives now and there's other species in here so when we look at this bank like Jen and Leah were listing weeds but there's native species here too there's Petostrum, Jen mentioned acacias. Um, there's a few eucalypts further down. There's eucalypts next to us just here. So it's a new community made up of both introduced species and native species in some kind of stable-ish system with the animal species then adapting to that, including introduced and native animals in, the, in this place as well, basically making a new community in this place. What's that tree? Is that Petostrum? No, that's Campbell Laurel. Camphor laurel has beautiful timber. Unfortunately, it breeds prolifically. And, you know, it's really successful in these kind of in-between spaces where it's really got nothing else to compete with. It's fulfilling a function, you know. It's actually shading the water. One of the reasons why the water quality is probably pretty good is that these creeks would have had a lot of shade over the top of them. And though that functionality of this tree is still there, it's, it's... you know, functionally performing some of the similar things that a, a rainforest tree would have done. It doesn't like it to be open and exposed and hot. It's also holding the bank together. Yeah. I mean, the bank doesn't care whether it's a native tree or an introduced species. It's holding the bank together, which is preventing a stack of extra sediment from running into the creek, which would mean that it was a, a different you know a creek of a totally different nature if there's lots of sediment in there whole different ecosystems are going to be thriving but that water as Jenny said that's quite clear the water quality is actually quite good despite the fact that we're in the middle of an industrial well it looks like the water quality is quite good despite the fact that we're in the middle of a an industrial estate and that little lizard sitting there in the sun looks pretty happy and before we head back to the car to go to our second stop along the creek Dr Leah Gibbs spots a native reptile on the edge of a creek I think it's an eastern water dragon sitting down there on a knackered-looking bit of old tin or aluminium or something in the water. Hard to read. We're up here somewhere. Yep. If we get back out onto Five Island Road, see that spot if we can find it. Yep. <laughs> we'll see you there. 
From the warehouses and small-scale factories at Unandera, we follow Allen's Creek towards the coast where it meets the sea at Port Kembla. But along the way, we make a quick stop just off one of the major arterial roads along the south coast to Sydney, where Allen's Creek diverts through land owned by the steelworks. Here, water gushes out of a massive industrial pipe onto a concrete gully, a stark sign of how humans have tried to tame the natural environment. Yet despite this, and through the cracks in the concrete, nature pushes back in abundance. There's actually a discharge point here, which we can go right next to, I think. So. Oh. We're on Marley Place in Unandera. It's a little street that's tucked behind the start of Five Islands Road, the western end of Five Islands Road. And we've just come uh, only about 20 metres off the, the side of the street to this discharge outlet. I just find the physical structure of this kind of rusting industry really dramatic. You know, that there's bridges and concrete and pipes and pylons and just stuff everywhere. And then all this kind of exuberant plant life everywhere. Because I haven't been here for a couple of years and I wasn't sure if I'd find it. And it's much more overgrown than like all these big reeds, these donax species I think here. Because the creek bed, like if you look at it here, I'm from here, maybe all the way through to the sea is concrete banks now. Like it's all channelised, there's a concrete bottom. But, but the plants are just cracked all that open in so many places. They've, you know, seeds have lodged all through that and... It's like a wilderness area, you know. It's kind of, it's a no man's land. <laughs> it's a very... If you carefully framed a shot here, you'd think you were in Tasmania, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the noise is from a pipe coming into the creek which says Environment Protection Licence Number 3241, Licence Discharge Point 5. So what we were saying about an EPA-regulated place where the industry gets the licence to discharge water which presumably includes some kind of pollutants into the natural natural stream bed. Just above that sign that Michael just read out near this big pipe is the another sign so we've got sample pump control panel fed from mines dewatering PLC control panel blah 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 so there's lots of kind of um, regulation of the space and regulation of the environment despite the fact that at a first glance it looks really chaotic and kind of dirty and messy and grubby, there's actually lots of regulation that happens in these landscapes as well that I think is really interesting. And what amazes me is, um, so that sign there with PLC control panel, like that's all being controlled by a programmable logic controller, really 90s industrial technology that must be sitting somewhere around. It could even be within the steelwork. But it's interesting that somewhere there is a computer controlling valves that are controlling that water that's coming out right here. And we have no idea where that goes to or where it's come from. Yeah. So maybe it's coming out of the mines. I mean, that's a long way. It's a lot of water. It's a lot of water. Which tells me that maybe it's um, cooling. So some kind of industrial process that involves cooling, which means that the water's not necessarily dirty. It's just been kind of run through as some kind of cooling process, but I'm only really guessing there. But I would presume that all the infrastructure here, the kind of concrete path leading down here, 
means that, or was kind of put in place probably to manage it and to monitor it, so it's probably monitored quite regularly. And like over the top of us, there's a, a railway bridge. Is that a railway bridge? Um, and, and another bridge just upstream of a road bridge just upstream of us here as well. So again, we're really squashed between infrastructure, which is something that Jen's spoken about as far as weeds kind of thriving in those in-between spaces all the way through the Illawarra or this part of the Illawarra. I mean, I think it's just fascinating that life finds a way to thrive here. You know, we're in the industrial heartland and you could wonder that there's any life here at all, but it's obviously it's a particular kind of life forms that are here. Um, You know, the kinds of plants that do really well in highly disturbed and, and changeable dynamic environments. It's not really just... Um, anything goes there are plants here that are prolific cedars there are plants here that thrive when bits of them get washed down the creek and still they find a way to live I think it's quite unexpected that you would come here to find so much life well if we think about how this was built there was a point where there was probably nothing green here when they put these bridges in when they built this concrete thing that we're standing on when they lined the channels with concrete it would have been a raw constructed landscape and yeah it would have been all heavy machinery and stuff in here and over time that's really dramatically changed they put the concrete in to keep the creek in the same place creeks have a habit of wandering around across their floodplains when they're in a different kind of environment but here in the industrial part of the country they want to make sure that that creek's not wandering around all across the floodplain. So the concrete keeps the creek where where people want it to be. People want it to be here and they want to keep other stuff out, the plants out, and yet the plants don't care. In a a big flood event, the the water doesn't care either. The water is going to break those banks. And so the concrete channels, um, yeah, they confine the river or the creek in order to protect that infrastructure. There's huge amounts of investment in building the infrastructure so there's a huge financial interest in making in protecting that infrastructure right but a big event a big flood event like we've had in the Illawarra at different times is just going to ignore that infrastructure and it's going to break the banks and it's going to undercut other parts of infrastructure and so on so you know you can sort of constrain or confine a river to a certain degree but inevitably the river will do what it wants to do. You know, these landscapes, they are productive. They're extremely diverse. There's so many different plants here. It raises really interesting questions to me about value, about what kinds of landscapes are valued, what kinds of plant species are valued, what kinds of plant assemblages are valued. How did you describe, Michael, the worst river or the worst creek or something in the Illawarra? Well, worst according to what? You know, there's really interesting questions, I think, about... Um, what we choose to value and what what kinds of landscapes we're actually creating at the moment. I couldn't put a number on how many creeks would have been concretized, but I would say a significant proportion probably in the Illawarra that the nature of the, the flood history often has resulted in quite quite devastating flooding. So it's been one of the ways in which people have tried to control that flooding. I mean, in many of the creeks in the Illawarra, they are now no longer on the surface. They've been put into pipes underground. 
So where I live in Port Kembla, at the, the lowest point in the landscape, there is a laneway with, um, which is kind of an extended park, but that has a creek in pipes underneath it, which is no longer visible. Again, what Jen was saying about controlling the movement of the creek because people own property and there's roads and we want that water to stay right where we put it. So we stick it in a concrete pipe. And so you can get a, a flow over the top of that, but it won't ever be very much. The, the problem with those concrete pipes, of course, is that with all this vegetation in the creek, those pipes tend to get blocked and then the water has to go somewhere and it usually goes over the top. So concrete holds on to water. It's not impervious to water. And that's why the plants like it. I mean, you can see the plants breaking through. You can see moss growing um, on the concrete straight in front of us. Yes. So I think the fact that the concrete holds water is even an issue for pipe infrastructure. It's a constant um, debate that I've heard in the Illawarra around whether or not you let vegetation grow in the creeks because there's this kind of idea that water needs to get out fast and so if you take the vegetation away um, the water can move quickly through that space and it's true vegetation slows down that movement of water the 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 problem with that is that then like Leah said before you don't have the the vegetation holding the banks together and so you you run the risk of those banks eroding over time and you'll have flooding over time the the vegetation is going to slow the water down and of course in a big flood event when you've got a lot of rain you actually want to slow the water down so water is going to flow really fast in a concrete channel and that's actually going to lead to really destructive floods so you have water barreling down a concrete channel and reaching a particular velocity a particular speed whacking into the side of the bend and spilling out over and you know and then creating damage to urban infrastructure and all that sort of stuff so you know we're constantly attempting to control these big flows of movement across the landscape because we like things to stay where we put them and it doesn't really work as everyone's saying but that's really a function of where we choose to build right and where we've kind of historically chosen to build in australia over time would we make different choices if we were building today? You know, communities, society, human beings, we need fresh water. So all around the world, we tend to build our towns and cities near some kind of fresh water supply. It's near a, a river or a creek or dam, uh, uh, wells or whatever it might be. So it's pretty, hard to, <laughs> it's pretty hard to survive without it. So if you think about the shape of the escarpment coming quite steeply down... At a particular point, it hits the floodplain, and that's quite unique in the Illawarra, that geometry of the escarpment and the floodplain. The water running down the escarpment hits this particular point and then goes, moves quite fast. That also happens to be the, the point at which we've built all our houses. So, you know, the issue in the Illawarra here is, for example, that, that the best places to build are on that that particular intersection of the fast-flowing water and the, and the point at which it starts to flood and move across the, the floodplain. The steelworks complex at Port Kembla looms large across both the local landscape and the public consciousness. Its presence in the landscape has defined the Illawarra as an industrial region since the early 20th century. For the last 30 years, a national political conversation has ebbed and flowed around what will become of cities like Wollongong.
Many have suggested that Wollongong needs to find a new future. We must find new things to do to replace steelmaking and the industries that support it. The demise of industrial Wollongong as we know it is only a matter of time. Who the we is depends, of course, on who is doing the talking and who is listening. Yet there's an innate sense of resilience in this landscape. Industrial workers continue to push back against global forces that threaten their livelihoods, just as nature continues to push back against the industrial infrastructure that surrounds it. As we continue our journey along the banks of Allen's Creek towards the point where it meets the sea, we hear about some unexpected visitors that have made their way upstream into the heart of this huge industrial site. Oh, it's warm down here. Mm. Yeah, we're out of the room. So here we are in front of the steelworks. I mean, I guess we always think of the steelworks as the steelworks, right, in the singular. But what's really interesting, I think, knowing it from the inside, is that this is the red area, because it's red. <laughs> as the opposed to covered in a red, red dust. Red dust. Yep. Um, as opposed to the black area that we see kind of directly behind us, which is the coal landscape. So the black area would be all of the coal preparation and the batteries of the coke ovens. So burning coal to turn it into coke, which is used in steel making. And then this red area where the buildings are covered in a red dust would be the iron ore and sinter plants. So processing iron which also goes into steel making. Collectively they're kind of known as the black areas because this is the filthy end of the steelworks. It's where I spent the entire four years of my apprenticeship because my dad worked at the other end and they didn't want to put me anywhere near him. But the other end of the steelworks, um, which is where things are rolled and kind of flattened and squashed down into steel plate and into tin, that sort of thing, are all the what what workers would call the clean areas or cleaner areas anyway you know we think of this landscape as an object within the Illawarra kind of landscape overall but it's actually a whole a number of different plants and you can work in the coke ovens and have no idea what happens at the other end and you can spend 40 years there as many people have and have no idea about the processes at the other end of the steelwork so it's about 840 hectares different parts of it each have a different character and a different workforce as a result so it's not just one place it's many many mills many places like it's very cool to have Chantelle here because she worked in the belly of the steelworks and I've only ever seen it from the outside and I have no clue what these buildings are like this gigantic thing with all these huge chimneys in front of us it looks like it's out of a Dickensian novel there's kind of grinding noises coming out of it there's steam coming out of those things like what happens in there I have absolutely no idea but this is what's interesting, right? Because I have no idea what happens right in there either. But 30 metres behind it is the number two blower station where I worked for a year and I can tell you exactly what happens there. So you don't actually know what happens right next door. We've come out to where Allen's Creek meets the ocean and we're really probably only three or four kilometres from where we started. We're standing next to a marine environment. It's salt water in front of us, but just tucked around behind Iron Chieftain, behind the two other big ships in a row, um, docked uh, on the other side of that. The harbour tucks around to the west and Allen's Creek flows out to meet the salt water there. But for a kilometre or so upstream is 
saltwater influence. So as the tide pushes in, that takes saltwater and marine things into that freshwater area, and then as the tide drops back again, the the freshwater takes over. And it, every single bit of landscape that we can see here around the water is constructed. There is nothing except straight lines and big boulders, you know, deliberately placed in this this location. So so this was Tom Thumb Lagoon, where Bass and Flinders um, pulled in when they sailed down down the coast and Tom Thumb Lagoon is now entirely constructed into the inner and outer harbour. So while it's a it's a completely human constructed landscape, you can see just looking straight over into the water here, there are oysters, there's seaweed, there's seabirds, there there is life coming through via that water. But again it's this kind of pulse of the living things pushing into the heart of the steelworks and pushing upstream um, through Allen's Creek towards the temple landscape again. Clear the water is. It's really clear, and the oysters on the side. Like it's actually you think of Port Kembla as so filthy, and this is what it's known as, right? But if you look into that water there, it's absolutely clear. A few years ago, it was when I started researching this creek, and I was just googling things, and I found this fishing forum. So it's fishermen, mostly men, talking to each other, and on there was a video of a of a ten foot black marlin, which is a huge oceanic predator fish basically deep in the middle of the steelworks and it had swum where we are here it had swum from the open ocean into the outer harbour into the inner harbour and gone upstream into Allen's Creek and somebody had filmed it on their phone camera and you could see it cruising around with the concrete lined creek and it was hunting for fish and other fishers were saying like what on earth is happening why is that fish here and people were saying is it sick is it disoriented and then other people saying no what's happening is that the the cooling water from the plant is creating a warm water environment which develops a particular marine habitat which supports a whole bunch of fish and that big oceanic predator has come in here to find those fish and possibly it follows a trace of warm water I don't know how they how they navigate those things but it was quite extraordinary this gigantic sort of iconic oceanic predator absolutely in the middle of the steelworks. What did the workers think? It was a little bit viral, the discussion. People were just going, like, how cool is that? And they were like, nobody was there except steelworkers. You can't be there if you're not a steelworker. And funny, jokey stuff, like a lot of expletives blanked out on the thing. Like, what the... And But it was quite interesting. We were talking before about toxicity because somebody along there had put, yeah, but you wouldn't want to eat it, assuming that, that his body is building toxicity you kind of got to be a little bit careful in the sense that you can't see here what's not here. And what we can't see here are the things that have died and the things that have been pushed out and the things that aren't... Obviously, they're not resilient because they're, they're not here. So, and, and what we lose from that is a lot of diversity and we lose that diversity is is also the thing that gives us re- resilience not just strength in the face of change but the but the the larder that's there the diversity of the the entire suite or assemblage or whatever other kind of group of organisms that you might want to call a, a collection what what we can't see are the things that are not here anymore so on on the one hand yes the things that are, he- are here are pretty tough they have to be to survive this kind of environment on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be here forever either, just because they're here now. So, you know, the kind of long-term toxic effects of bioaccumulated 
metal, heavy metals on marine life over a long period of time can be highly detrimental. And the fact that there might be some life here now doesn't mean that they're not affected by that. At the same time, I mean, I think one of the things that happens in this area is it gets a really bad rap because the pollutants and the industry are so visible. And that loss that you were just talking about, Jenny, um, is apparent in many urban, suburban landscapes around this country, around the world, all the stuff that we can't see. But here, we can see so much. Like we can, And so that attention is focused on what we can see. You know, that visible pollution, it, it becomes the focus where actually there's often a lot of pollutants or there's loss, like Jenny was saying, that are less visible. And um, I think that regions like this sometimes get a bit more negative attention than they perhaps deserve. But the other thing is, you know, like all of this stuff that we're looking at here, all of this Dickensian construction, it's only 200 years old. And if we think of this, the much more ancient landscape that we're standing on, if we go a few kilometres south of here, there's an Aboriginal shell midden on the beach, which is maybe five or six or 7,000 years old. If we think 10,000 years ago, the coastline was kilometres out to sea. So Aboriginal people have already lived through dramatic changes, including this 200 years of, like, extreme change. But 10,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, there was another one when the ocean was moving 20 metres landwards every year at the peak. And the descendants of whom live here today dealt with that. And I, I just think that's a fantastic inspiration for that we need to embrace change. It's not going to stop. You know, all that discussion about the creek is historically we've been attempting to prevent change, trying to keep it in its place, and that's not going to happen. That's the other dimension of Allen's Creek which I find fascinating. It's hidden. We've all done it today. We've sort of gone down strange lanes and climbed over fences and ducked under things and been surrounded by barbed wire and chain link and kind of obscure things. And so it's hidden and it's kind of ignored or largely ignored. And I find those areas just really interesting. The bits that are left over in the landscape when we've prioritised and, you know, changed all these other things, what are the bits that we haven't focused on and what's happened in those places? Yeah. What does it mean to live in a landscape that's dynamically, that is dynamic and is changing and it won't be what it is um, in 100 years from now, but we still will probably live here and, and form some kind of attachment to it in a different way. I guess I just wanted to add that um, as geographers, we're all really interested in place. And, you know, we've just seen by going to three or four sites on this little creek that there's loads and loads of different stories that are connected to these places there's lots of different stories that involve different kinds of people over time, different sorts of meanings, values of place, associations, different kinds of life forms that, that you know, thrive or don't thrive, things that are lost, things that, are, that emerge. And um, I think that we're all really interested in, in the layers of story that emerge in places. And that's a great note to end on, since it gives us an insight into what human geographers do best. Telling stories about places is about making connections, something that's increasingly important in our fast-paced and volatile world. 
This has been the first episode of There's No Place Like, a production of Access, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong, and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Darawal people of the Yuan Nation. Go to the podcast show notes to find the geolocation or coordinates to find Allens Creek on your map. You can find more information and the latest research from Access on the website. Just type in UOW and Access into your search engine and you'll find the page for the research centre. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. Coming up next, live recordings from the Entanglements lecture series. Don't miss it by subscribing free to There's No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy, editing by Lizzie Jack. And thank you to Kevin Brand for the original music. A big thank you to Chantel Carr, Michael Adams, Jenny Atchison and Leah Gibbs. And thank you for listening. So if this is the worst creek in the Illawarra, in parts of it it's actually pretty good. We haven't done any chemical testing. <laughs> <laughs>